As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. With me is your favorite host, the sine qua non of So Very Wrong About Games, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well. I am the ne plus ultra of unnecessary Latin, Mark Bigney, and we are going to be talking about board games this week. What? Yes. Uh-oh. This, none of this is going to make sense, then. You usually ambush me with this fact, and I've prepared something else. It is with great honor that I get to turn the tables and announce that we are going to be talking about board games. We're going to be talking about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Cthulhu Death May Die. So with that in mind, let us hurtle onwards into the games we've played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Well, we've talked a lot about Project Elite, so I've tried it solo. There was a lot of talk online about how hard it is and how it's still super fun, so I gave it a try. It is, in fact, difficult, but I... Managed to pull it through at the end. It's very, uh, it's not as fun like when you're, because you get to control two characters with five dice instead of four dice each. And try and remember that one with the weapons only gets to roll two dice when it shoots and it has a shorter range. Or, you know, just making sure you keep those separate. It's easy enough to make sure you pick two characters that have very helpful and or unique abilities so you can keep them straight. But making sure you keep their weapons straight. You know, in the spur of the moment, when you have two minutes and you're rolling furiously, you just try to gotta stop and make sure you're doing the right thing and not, you know, because if you're not doing it right, then then it's pointless. If you're not doing it right, why are you doing it at exactly. all? Which is absolutely our approach to board gaming. Exactly. Well, so super fun, and I'm definitely gonna try it again. I might even like just push my way through the because there's a campaign that came with that Kickstarter, so I might just push my way through the campaign just to see how it uh, pans out. My concern with Solo Project Elite is twofold. I played Solo Project Elite, both the old version and the new version. One of them is, one of the lovely moments of tension when things are going wrong is when the alien you are about to shoot 
is moved by one of your colleagues, and now it's not where you need it to be. And or when someone looks across the table and says, sorry, and then pushes you with an alien dealing damage to you. Those are great moments. Those are great gameplay moments of frustration that I think really add to the experience. The other problem is that the when you only have five dice, given that most objectives require four, that leaves you with a razor-thin margin whereby if you collectively have lost two dice by virtue of wounds, game's over and that's it. And I find that that really influences in turn what characters you can take, because a lot of characters lose their first die after they take one point of damage. And anything that reduces the possible variety or feels like it constrains me down a certain path, I'm I'm less of of a fan. But the fact that it's soloable is definitely nice. Well, the the other cool part was the fact that I actually read through every character, because I I had to figure out which ones I was going to take. There's a character that loses a die right off the start. Yes. It only gets three days so that he, he was out. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> he does not Hard get pass. to come along. Hard pass for him. And the other thing that, that is probably true is that you're less, you're less invested. It's more of a game then because you have two characters, you know what I mean? Whereas if you're just concentrating on one, then you're a little more invested. It's like, this is your character. This is what you're doing. Oh, you're sure. More worried. Where if it's, if you're controlling two, then it's more of just like going through the motions, you know what I mean? It's more of, more of a strategic game than it is, you know, a fight for survival, maybe. I see. So when you say it's more of a game, you mean that you're more detached from what's going on. Exactly. That's weird. For me, this is just a verbal tick. I would put it the opposite. It's more of a game for me the more immersed I am in the experience. That's just an interesting verbal difference between the two of us. I got to play Imperial Struggle again. I played on Vassal with my good friend Josephus. This is the GMT kind of sort of almost but not really successor to Twilight Struggle by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews. And I just wanted to add one important coda to our review from a few weeks back. Because I didn't mention this at the time. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't stress this. We didn't really talk a lot about the historical background of what was going on during the period of Imperial Struggle. Largely because you don't care and largely because... I found it, I thought it was relatively transparent as to what was going on. I want to be a little clearer. When you say you don't care, he's talking to me and not our audience. Just, yes. just to make sure. <laughs> Thank you, Walker. That is an important proviso. I am making eye contact with Walker. And so when I say you don't care, I mean Walker doesn't care. When I say you are a failure, I mean Walker is a failure. These are just hypothetical things I might say. I'm not actually saying them at I'm the moment. I'm going to say stop. You're doing like a, an impression of your father that is like, is just mind blowing right now. I think my father prefers you to me. Anyway. But here's the thing about Imperial Struggle, and this has actually been pointed out by Chris Farrell and a number of other people. Imperial Struggle's attitude towards slavery is potentially problematic. Now, I've been very clear. I'm willing to play games where terrible, terrible things happen. I play as Nazis in war games, not exclusively or by choice, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do it. The problem is that I was kind of extending a little bit too much credit based primarily on their excellent work contextualizing things in Twilight Struggle. I've been very, very clear that when you're going to be dealing with problematic issues and problematic historical themes, and more on this later when we talk about Cthulhu Death May Die, context matters. And how you present things, how you frame things matters a great deal. And Twilight Struggle, I was very approving of the fact that it's largely a satire of power politics, of a lot of the internal doctrines that were absurd. And despite the fact that those doctrines are repeated in Twilight Struggle, they're repeated as satire. What if these false things were true? And I think that a lot of the cards really cue into that, and certainly the, the player notes uh, player notes do. On the other hand, if you play something like Labyrinth, The War on Terror, you find that it is more or less just a neoconservative revisionist history of why you needed to invade Iraq, because really that was so important for stamping out global terror. Anyway, 
setting all that aside. But Imperial Struggle covers uh, a, a period of colonialism that involved the setting up and expansion of the transatlantic slave trade, which involved the systematic brutalization of untold millions of Africans. And two of the the four theaters in Imperial Struggle are directly related to that, namely the Caribbean and the West Indies, and the establishment of the colonies in North America. And again, that that happens i don't find problematic but i was going over through the player the uh player guide and the designers notes and all you hear from the authors is how they're francophiles and anglophiles and they wanted to present the empires at the peak of their strength and revel in the glory of english and french achievements and i'm sorry those two things in conjunction aren't cool that to me is intention and, and is a bit problematic now Problematic media is very much my bread and butter. I'm a Kant scholar who enjoys Macross and plays war games. Of course, I indulge in lots of problematic media, but I just wanted to stress that Imperial Struggle setting is very, very unfortunate with respect to how it just glosses over the issue of slavery. Yes, there is a tile called slavery that can make uh, boats cheaper for you. And I, again, the existence of that tile I don't find problematic. But again, one of the things that re can really elevate uh, a good war game into a great war game or can really contextualize a problematic piece of, of wargaming design into a very excellent or transgressive or, or, or interesting piece of wargame design is framing, is contextualization, is understanding what's going on. I worry that Imperial Struggle does not represent that. And so I would have been, felt remiss if, I, if I, I, I didn't add that as a bit of a code of the review. That having been said... The play was great. I really like playing Imperial Struggle. The systems are really good. I find in many ways they're more transparent than the ones in Twilight Struggle, despite the fact that it's a denser game. I wish, again, that it was easier to internalize who was going to win various wars, and the Vassal module, as of now, still doesn't do that. It does give you a quick summary of who's leading in terms of flags in every theater, but honestly, of all of the things you had to do in terms of glossing the board state, that was the easiest one. For sure. And so the fact that they could have implemented uh, a more robust war accounting system in Haven is a bit unfortunate. And so that thing, that really remains unfortunate. There's also the whole recurring notion of the fact that sometimes they list available spoils in a redundant way and sometimes they don't, leading to further confusion. Is it worth overcoming that? Absolutely. Is it worth overcoming the problematic framing? I think so. It is a very interesting design. I'm glad I returned to it. I will probably keep it in broad rotation, especially if my Twilight Struggle opponents take to it the same way that they've taken to Twilight Struggle. And so that is sort of my coda and revisiting of Imperial Struggle over the course of the past week. So I got to play another new game on Board Game Arena. Rob Davio and Justin Jacobson redid, from Restoration Games, we did a Wolfgang Kramer game. Wolfgang Kramer's game is called Top Race. The new game is called Downforce. Now, apparently, if you play with the player character powers, it's much more interesting Let's hope so. <laughs> so what you're doing in Downforce is that you're given this huge hand of cards that have all sorts of different colors which pertain to the race cars on the track. And they all have these different numbers. And you're going to use these numbers to race these cars around the track. But at the beginning of the game, you're going to start bidding to see which car is actually sort of your car. Because if it gets first, then you are going to get more money. And then throughout the race, you get to bet on who you think is going to win, say if you're not doing so well or, or so on and so forth. It didn't, it didn't seem very rewarding. The choices, you know, weren't really there. It was, it was usually fairly obvious which card you're going to play. There was some fairly interesting places where you could block sometimes or, you know, make it more difficult for other players. But the majority of the time it was obvious which card you're going to play or, or the fact that there was no possible way you're going to catch up or so on and so forth. I'm definitely going to try it with the player powers and I'm hoping it's going to, you know, fan out a little bit better. 
I found that the blocking was largely accidental. It was one of those games where if I knew the contents of your hand, and if I knew which cars you cared about, now granted the latter is usually reasonably obvious at some points, but not always, then I could possibly block you intelligently. But very often I found that movements were primarily just, well, I need the car that I like to go as far as possible and as fast as possible. Oh, accidentally that happens to block orange for you. Oh, you don't care about blocking orange. Oh, okay, well, whatever. And you'd frequently end up in situations like this. Or you might find out that the other player cared desperately about what happened to orange. Ha-ha! Strategy. I agree with you. Downforce didn't really do anything for me at all. You can even play with less complexity or at least less involvement than, than you did because there's additional layers of betting. You can play with less betting involved. And then it's even less of a game. Wolfgang Kramer is a very, very talented designer, and I am a fan of some of Restoration Games' work, namely the redo of Conspiracy, but I really think that Downforce was... Yeah, this is what I'm trying to get at. I'm not understanding why they picked this particular game. Like, what what qualities did it show that that needed to be reprinted or redone? There's so many other games out there that do it much better. Anyway... Like there's a very played. It's called like I think it's called Gallippi Gallipolo. It's this fantastic children's game with wooden horses and the same sort of thing. You have a hand of cards that are one through six, and you just try to outguess your opponents. That has more choice and more you know hair pulling out moments than Downforce ever did. Have you played Winner's Circle by Reiner Knizia? A long time ago. Winner's Circle by Reiner Knizia is my favorite race slash betting game. We call it Pretty Ponies in some of my group. It was definitely the filler of choice. I have the lovely Korean Dice Tree edition. And it's a great racing betting game. They're not especially similar to the Downforce, except in the the, the broad scope of things. But yeah, I agree with you. It was an odd choice. Like, it's the lower quintile of Wolfgang Kramer's output. He's a great designer, and he's done great things. And Rob Daviau has done some great things, but Downforce is a total miss for me. How recently did they put it up on Board Game Arena? Just this week. I played the last expansion to Albedo that I hadn't tried yet, the most recent one called Yggdrasil. As you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for Norse mythology. This has nothing to do with Norse mythology, except for the fact that it represents a race of alien plants, and one of their ships is called the World Tree. There's no dragon gnawing at its roots, so obviously it's not the right Yggdrasil, but I move on with great difficulty. Albedo is the simultaneous action selection slash blind bidding slash deck builder thing that is very, very quick, kind of like Core Worlds in 20 minutes. I'm still a huge fan of Albedo. Yggdrasil was probably it at its weakest. Yggdrasil is an expansion faction that is by far the most different. So if you play as the expansion faction, the Space Pirates, you just have a different set of cards and you play as normal. The way Yggdrasil works is you have 17 cards and you plot out your first three turns playing five cards each. So you don't play six cards a turn like you do with the other factions, nor do you draw a new hand at the end. You get to plan out your first three rounds kind of sort of almost. I don't think that Albedo is at its best when you're doing that. I think that it is far better when you just have a hand of cards. How am I going to play this card? Where am I going to play this card? That's it. And then when it comes time to resolve the card, what am I going to do with this force that I've generated? At that level, you still get, I find, for my value, a shocking amount of trade-offs and interesting decisions and and gambles and and interesting options. And this additional level of working didn't really sell the game to its strength. Now, it does add variety. This is effectively now the third extra faction that you can try with Albedo, and that is for the good. So if you find the lack of variety series sticking point, which I don't, Yggdrasil might be a much-needed shot in the arm. It also introduces a system of one-use take-that cards, which I did not touch and probably will never touch, because again, Albedo is a simple game. I don't think it needs an entirely other mechanism grafted onto it. Uh, No plant pun intended. 
Memoir 44, when they came out with the Russian faction, they did sort of, sort of the same thing. When you do a Command and Colors, in that in those games, you each, you know, choose a card, or even when it's your turn, you choose a card, and, you, you know, you play left flank, you know, right flank. But when the Russian army came out, uh, you actually had to plan ahead, a couple turns ahead of time. So you had to, like... Right, the Commissar of, rules, right? Yeah, the Commissar yeah. rules. And I thought that was very interesting in that context, but apparently in your game, it did not work. Well, it's not that you're planning ahead in that sense. It's and it, it, it doesn't represent any sort of command confusion. Like I didn't really when you're playing commissar rules and upfront has had commissar rules. A lot of Eastern Front Soviet war games have had commissar rules. That at least you have some degree of thematic evocation, and you feel like you're trying to wrestle this this interestingly different beast in terms of doctrine and so forth. Uh, like if if there was some even some flavor text somewhere in the rulebook about why the plants were playing this way, maybe I'd be okay with it. Like they do other things that that are different too, and those parts are neat. Like for example, when you buy a tank, you don't take a tank from the tank stack stack. You take your special corrupted tank unit that is a tank that's been overtaken by weird plant stuff. That part was really cool, and you can only do it once, and so there's a trade off involved. So if you tanks you can't buy that was an interesting constraint and not handicapping and didn't really make me feel restricted in terms of what i did in the future it just informed my future decision making that part was all cool but the 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 weird hand management was a little strange and i don't really think the game needs one shots so it's a very blunt come from behind mechanism each each unused one shot is worth one point at the end of every round whoever's in last place gets one Eh. I might give it a try sometime if somebody really felt the need, but Albedo continues to be somewhat divisive. Half of the people I show it to seem to like it, and half the people I show it to don't seem to like it very much. I am a big, big fan of Albedo, and I'm very glad to have tried Yggdrasil, and I'm glad to have the option available, even though those specific elements didn't really work for me. But again, just to round it off, the benefit of playing a different faction in Yggdrasil is you can play the different faction and everyone else can play the base game faction. They don't even need to understand how the faction works. Despite the fact that there's a high degree of player interaction, you don't need to understand the internal uh, mechanism of, of the faction. If you wanted to play super optimally, I suppose, given the way the Yggdrasil works, you could say, okay... You played these five cards. What ten cards do you have left in your hand? Okay, well, well et cetera, et cetera. But I miss, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't play that way. <laughs> so that is my future experience with Albedo. Those people don't get invited back. <laughs> they don't get cookies. <laughs> they don't get to play Albedo. I played another game on Board Game Arena that actually did work for me. It's a pick up and deliver game, Mark. I, you know, it's a, you know, I finally found one that worked for me. This is called Off the Rails. It's by Andrew and Stuart Platt. And Andrew Platt also did the, artwork it was an old kickstarter game and their company is called rotten games it's just a fun little game you have four actions in which you're laying track and they're like mine carts and you're and these the the board gets seated with gems you know every turn and four actions to lay out track or change them to four ways or three ways or increase the speed of your mine carts or or put out a new mine cart and then boom my four actions are done and then your mine carts are going speeds 1 through 6 and when your turn's done off they go you have no control well you have control whether they're going to turn at a turn or whatever but they're going to go those number of spaces they can crash into other carts and if you're holding more cargo than they are then you know you knock pieces off or it was super fun went super fast and you know halfway through the game the mine starts collapsing and crushing track and it for the time it takes and super fun that does sound awfully charming i would be willing to give that a try yeah and it's and 
like I said, I played it on the computer, but I looked at the components, like little plastic mine carts where the dice sits right inside it to mark the speed that it's going. Adorable. And exactly. And they zoom along and you, and if you go, if you zoom, go zooming past the gems and you can only pick up one, but if you're, you know, you're, if you got your speed just right and you land on right where the gems are, then you can pick up more. And if it's stone, you got to pick up the stone. Anyway, there's all sorts of like little minor rules, but in all in all, it, it goes pretty quickly and is, and it's very entertaining. Two questions. First of all, is there a tacked-on goblin or dwarf element? No. Good. Sick to death of they games are, about dwarves oh, or sorry, goblins sorry, mining. There, there are there are goblins. Sorry, I, I apologize, uh, but there's no but there's no like mechanisms. But there uh, are goblins that are mining. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. less interested in the game already. Oh. Second question is: Have you ever played Merchant of Venus? No. Merchant of Venus is by far my favorite pick up and deliver game. It was done by the brilliant Richard Hamblin. It is a really, really, really good design. I haven't played it in years. I should really introduce it to you so you can crap all over it and be totally wrong about it. I got to play Planet Apocalypse. Planet Apocalypse was a game by Sandy Peterson Games. This is the publisher that design that publishes games by Sandy Peterson. He of Sandy Peterson Games. And this is sort of uh, this is the same company that does Cthulhu Wars. And Planet Apocalypse was one of their recent Kickstarters that fulfilled not too long ago. And it is a co-op kind of sort of almost tower defensey thing where the legions of hell are invading Earth, and you're a ragtag group of humans trying to fight them back. The ultimate goal is to kill a demon lord before you all die. Standard, pretty standard fare there. And I have to say it's weird. I've now played it twice, and I don't really know how I feel about it. For one thing, the dice mechanisms are charmingly old school, almost unapologetically so. You roll a whole bunch of polyhedral dice of various sizes, all the way from the ugly, disgusting D4 to the noble D12. And if you roll in excess of their toughness, you kill something. If you don't, nothing happens. And there's no way to manipulate the dice. The moment they hit the table, that's it. You're done. And so you can roll your 3D12 and stare at your 4, 3, and 2 and say, well, that was fun, and nothing happens. Oof. Which is fine from a gameplay perspective. It just felt very... It, it, it actually brought to mind how rare you see that now. Usually there's something that you can do after the roll to manipulate things, or you bemoan the omnipresence of dice pool builders, but I still kind of like them. Anyhow, so there's that. There's also the very strange, as I say, tower defense element where you're recruiting troopers by rolling an unmodified D4 and dropping them in groups. And anytime bad guys come into that space, they are ambushed and a certain number of dice are rolled to, to try to kill them. That part is, is cool, except for the fact that you can't mix troop types, so it's shockingly limited. So say for the sake of argument, you're in the starting area. You can only recruit from the starting area. You roll a d4. Ah, you've got a four. Great. You can get one of the most expensive troopers. Sounds great. Well, now you're locked into that. You can't draw any other kind of trooper without discarding this expensive trooper first, and you can't lay them in ambush if there are other weak, weak peons around, because they'll scare them away, I guess. That's how it works. And so if you want to get to those better values, because you get to better values by having multiples of the same trooper in a given space, you're committed to getting more of that one thing. Now, all of this can be offset by courage. Courage is the overwhelming currency. You spend courage to upgrade your recruitment role. You spend courage to try to buff your friends' roles and upgrade their dice. You spend courage to get gifts, which is how you level up your people. And all that part is fine. It, you know, you start... Scra you're scrabbling for courage at the start of the game and then you're drowning in courage. The part that is calibrated badly for my preferences, and this is just a pure personal preference thing, is it is a return to form of the older style of adventure game, even though it's not an adventure game, whereby you gather up power and then you have to decide when you are ready to kill the boss. I'm not very good at that. 
I don't really enjoy that kind of calculation. Left to my own devices, being the conservative, very slow, methodical player that I am, I will wait until I'm at the highest possible level, which is longer than I should, and so the game will drag. Which it did not happen the time we played. Uh, the game dragged instead because we were one of the games we played was on Tabletop Simulator, and there, when you have to deploy six minions, it takes a while to drag everything where it needs to be, and so forth. The other weird thing about Planet Apocalypse is that the visual design is very striking. It's like Hieronymus Bosch having a bad acid trip, which I realize may sound like I'm saying the same thing twice, but nonetheless, there you are. Weird mouths everywhere. What Kingdom Death Monster had a thing for for hands, Planet Apocalypse has for mouths. Mouths everywhere where you do not want mouths to be on the design of the demons. And some of the minis are kind of impressive, but I will say this, and I've said this about Cthulhu Wars as well, the human-scale miniatures in Cthulhu Wars are not much to write home about. They're kind of... They're a little blunt in terms of overall detail. What you what you like in Cthulhu Wars in terms of visual appeal are the giant monster figures. And in Planet Apocalypse, sure enough, the demons that are big are very impressive. But the humans that you're playing as, and the small demons you spend a lot of time fighting, eh, not particularly visually impressive. So there's that. The difficulty scaling is also kind of all over the place with player count, and it's just a, a little bit more grit than I'd like in terms of timing issues and a variety of other problems, some errata to track down, etc., etc. It was okay, but it was just kind of strange. It left me strangely unsatisfied both times that I played. And part of it, as I say, is just because of my personal preference with respect to beef up, go kill the boss. That's not really the arc that I like. More on that later when talking about Death May Die. And part of it was also just visually I wasn't quite arrested. The style didn't do much for me, and I didn't think that the components were, were very visually appealing. There's going to be another Kickstarter for Planet Apocalypse coming up sometime soon, I, my understanding is. And so if the five boxes of content that already exists is not enough for you, you can probably go and get five more, because such is the way of Peterson Games. So far, all the designs of Peterson games that I've tried that have not been called Cthulhu Wars have been functional and occasionally interesting, but haven't really quite hit for me. And I have to say that so far, my experience with Planet Apocalypse has been of that tenor. So lots of dice rolling, lots of running around and, and, and killing things, but didn't really work for my preferences. And so that was my early experiences with Planet Apocalypse. All right, so I played Nippon and Madeira way back in the day, and seen as just way back in the day, way back when I was. Aren't they like five years old at most? When, when I was, but a wee lad. Okay. And since we've been, I've been playing a lot of Nippon lately. I decided to revisit my the one game of Madeira that I did play because These, they're by the same publisher, right? By the same publisher and the same the same uh, designer oh, okay. as well. They're both from uh, Nuro Bazaro Centurino. And Paulo Soldad. Both games are by the same designers. So if you like being handcuffed, Mark, <laughs> and you like not doing it's what... Not, it's not this kind of podcast, and, Mark. And, We're not going to talk about that and on you air. you don't want to make sure you can't do what you want to do. The safe word is tulip. Every single f game mechanic is put there to get in your way. Then Madeira is the game for you. So you, you take these dice... You have to draft them. Everyone has three sets of dice that they have to draft. So you get your dice, and and they might be good enough to do the actions that you want to do, but probably not. You probably have to bump them up with bread. But guess what? You also need that bread to feed your workers because on top of everything else, yes, you even have to feed your workers. Which is something you always hate. That's if you have, you know, the right actions to get those workers out and someone hasn't already taken the actions in which for you to use your workers and get more bread 
And it's just the cycle of not being able to do what you want. So if that is a game that appeals to you, <laughs> then Madeira has it tenfold. If you want to feel constant pressure of not being able to do anything, then phew, boy, oh, does it have it in spades. Now, could you speculate? as to how much of the balance is limitations imposed by the system in terms of just strict mechanical limitations versus limitations that are imposed by the system because you are under the gun for a scarcity of resources. Because I know that just in terms of personal preference, anytime you have to feed your workers and you feel resource deprivation, that is often not something you enjoy. I think it's something that's there just because I'm really bad at the game. <laughs> okay. But that being said, no, I really feel that it is just an overall handcuffing experience. And it doesn't give you like that, that free flowing. It's like, I can't do that, that I want to do because I still have to do this first. And then you're just constantly doing these steps and steps to build up to do what you want to do. Right. It's just, it's not my, it's not my gig. It's not your gig. It's not my party. Not your jam. I got to play Gaslands Refueled. Gaslands is, of course, one of our favorite tabletop miniatures games where the miniatures are Hot Wheels cars. I played over Vassal because I was showing it to somebody remotely. And whenever I have to show somebody a miniatures game for the first time, I often feel a sense of nervousness because teaching someone a tabletop miniatures game is very difficult. They tend to be very rules heavy. There are a lot of conventions that tabletop miniatures games have that sometimes people are familiar with, sometimes not. And in order to show the system to its fullest strengths, you often have to go down the rabbit holes of unit-specific actions or unit-specific features or faction differentiation, all of which are not the kind of thing that you want to front-load, especially with a rules-heavy experience. That having been said, I shouldn't have worried because I keep forgetting. Every time I finish a game of Gaslands, it's like it instantaneously loses my head. Gaslands as a system... There are no dull moments in Gaslands. Oh, it's like a movie. Yes. Almost every time. Something interesting happens at a regular basis. And indeed, I have to say that this demo worked perfectly. I built a couple of teams where they had just a couple of tricks each just to get a, just to get a sense of things. And it was like clockwork. Every other activation, something new happened that hadn't happened before. It's like, okay, this is how collisions work. Ah, this is how you manipulate this particular configuration of skid dice. Ah, this is how you execute this particular daring maneuver. Maybe you might want to consider this element of, of strange man maneuver sliding. Oh, this is how weapons fire works. And this is how you blow up. And so it was. <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't have planned it better. It was just clockwork. But then again, as I was feeling so smug, aha, I've designed a perfect showcase. I keep forgetting Gaslands is its own best showcase. Right, and how does the Vassal mod handle it? Well, okay, so I've commented before that the Vassal mod started out really good, and I've been I've been tinkering with it over the course of the past few weeks. Importing more assets, making the interface work better to my tastes as opposed to the tastes of the endlessly talented gentleman who initially set it up but i've been in correspondence with him about how to how to tweak it further for one thing it was the gaslands mod the one that's currently available is stuck in the previous version namely gaslands simpliciter as opposed to gaslands refueled so i made this the system be able to accommodate the new the, the new stuff with the new player aids and the new turn structure and things like that uh the vessel module is pretty good the thing about gaslands with any other template movement system is some people just get a little twitchy with respect and i know you're one of these people with with all do sympathy get a little twitchy about moving the cars properly and you will get twitchy only about your cars because you're a fair man it's not that you're worried about other people trying to cheat you it's just you want to play quote-unquote properly i'm pretty laissez-faire i'm pretty relaxed about this if it's close enough i'm willing to let it go i'm not saying that you know you avoid a collision because let us remember the way that gaslands resolves ambiguities is with the rule of carnage whatever causes the most destruction and mayhem is what actually happens 
I flubbed that a little bit over the course of this demo, just so we could keep things moving, I have to admit. That was the one concession to a demo intro game that I did for this version. I have to say that the Gaslands Vassal module was pretty good. It started out pretty good, and I think it's it's, it's still pretty good. Manipulating the templates is pretty easy. Nothing snaps anywhere, and it's not automated. This isn't like X-Wing. The X-Wing mods are truly a work of breathtaking programming beauty when they work. But Gaslands, you have to do everything manually, but it works well enough. And I've played a bunch of games online and uh, through Vassal, both with people that were familiar with Gaslands and those uh, and people that were not familiar, and it's never really disappointed. It's a fabulous game and a great system. Do I prefer playing with my own Mustangs and with the physical movement templates and all the glory that that uh, provides? Absolutely 100%. But I have to say that you don't lose very, very much in the digital translation. And it's just a, it's just an endlessly satisfying system. You constantly see interesting things happen. And at the end of the day, I, that's not necessarily the best thing that you can say about a, a game system, but it's certainly hard to dislike a game where fun stuff is constantly occurring. I just realized something that would be really interesting because they had it for Formula Day. Someone had programmed a, you know, side, a side computer module like where you could play formula day and you you know normally you go around the track just like you normally would but when the race was over you could hit a button and it would replay the race in real time so it actually <laughs> looked like an actual real race right but that is using amazing. the rules and everything else but can you imagine how interesting that would be cool if it did that for either x-wing or gaslands where it's sort of you know vassal sort of remember the rules and remember what happened and sort of like played played it back for you in in real time that would be kind of kind of cool that would be very neat but I am mercifully past digital gaming as my primary <laughs> gaming outlet. I am certainly willing to indulge in it on occasion, particularly where it comes with Vassal or when there's no alternative. There are some people we know locally who are immunocompromised, and for them, digitally is the way to go. And I'm certainly willing to do that to stay in contact with people that I don't have any other way to stay in contact with. But Gaslands almost never disappoints, and it was definitely a blast. No pun intended. So those were the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So this is the big Gen Con online week, Mark. Are you excited? Super excited. Nope. I'm super excited because this is uh, when Fantasy Flight Games announces all their super exciting, up-and-coming... Star Wars stuff. ...releases that they're going to do. Yeah, Star Wars stuff. So I want everyone just to... I know it's going to take a while for me to get through them all. The Star Wars stuff. But I'm going to tell you all the ones that I found interesting and I'm looking forward to coming up this year. So Mythic Games (laughs) has pictures (laughs) out for their Darkest Dungeon miniatures. So Mythic Games is coming out with the Darkest Dungeon game and they put up some pictures of the miniatures that are going to be out for it. This is an adaptation of the PC game called Darkest Dungeon? Yes. Oh, I did not know they were doing that. Yeah, so I think that's going to be very interesting. It's probably going to be another mythic uh, big Kickstarter. So I'm looking forward to it. That is that is the modus operandi. It is. The other thing, the Tutankhamen by uh, Reiner Knizia. Did you you've played that? I have and a long time it? ago. I honestly don't remember. You don't remember? That's why I broke down was, here. It was before it was before I was a critic, and I had to have opinions about things. Back on the mythic bandwagon here, they've been talking about Reichbusters. Project Vril and all the errata we've been going on and on about here. And if this goes through what they've, what they've said they're going to do, this would be one of the greatest moves from a company ever. They're actually doing like an errata pack. They said it's going out to all the backers. You're going to get a new rule book, all sorts of new cards, just a whole bunch of stuff that fixes the game the way it's supposed to be. Now, if this all goes out, you know, money free, I think this will be one of the greatest moves I've ever seen. 
Well, that's hardly unprecedented. I mean, the Street Masters did the exact same thing with new rule books, a huge number of new cards, cards that were shipped. And this was usually just like a misplaced comma or a very minor preposition error. So, really, I've, I've never had, I've always had, well, here's here's the file online of the fixed rule Yes, there's that. Or You're right that that's more common. You know, I've seen a lot of things like that. I've never got like an entire pack of, like, Simon's done it a, a bunch of times as well. They send you a whole new pack of cards or whatever. But I've never seen it with a, you know, brand new rule book and all sorts of cards. And the cards are bit, much bigger than they, you know, are going to, are there, that they are in the box. And we've oh. talked about how they should have just had the character abilities written there. That's, yes. what, that's what they're going to have now. Oh, wow. That's great. They, yeah, they wanted the entry point much faster, and they're going to have sheets with all the abilities so you're not rifling through the book. So you just All this free of charge? All of this, apparently. Like, that I, is I want to I want to wait till I see it. Sure. Know, until it arrives at my door before I go too much on Five about it. Five years from now, yeah. But that would be amazing. So you have no enthusiasm for the Twilight Imperium expansion? Well, we already we talked about Twilight. We talked about this like three weeks ago. <laughs> we broke. The, we already broke this news. We didn't break any. Do you know what broken news means? Oh, we already knew Prophecy of the Kings was coming out. All right, so Prophecy of the Kings, it's the Twilight Four expansion. They're gonna have seven entirely new factions. They're not even in Twilight Imperium Three. They're gonna have forty new tiles because it's gonna go up to eight player now. I'm gonna play that a lot. Eight player. I'll schedule those pencil those dates in. Well, I'm afraid I that right I'm away. Sorry, I mentioned it. They brought in a lot of the stuff just seems like it's just ported in from Twilight Imperium 3, the leader system with, you know, all the espionage cards, everything else. That all seems the same. That's the great thing about a new edition. You get to re-release all the expansions you sold before. Exactly. And they have, instead of, you know, having tanks, they're going to just change them to mechs and they look, they look, so they do exactly the same thing that the tanks did. So just updating it all to the same thing that Twilight Imperium 3 was, but with just the new fancy looking stuff. And I do have one other thing. Just, you know, don't fall asleep. It's called X-Men Mutant Insurrection. It, it's yet another. <laughs> well, it's an, it's an, it's, it's. It's a dice chucking game. Yeah. Yet another. I was about to, do you know what I was about to say? And I realize now I'm, I'm in the dumbest man on earth. I was about to say, well, in their defense, at least it's a new license. No, it's not. <laughs> no. X-Men are just part of Marvel. They've been, yeah, they've been turning the event. Yeah, sorry. How ignorant am I? Oh, and then. And then Descent Legends of the Dark. At the end of this video, they do this little skit where he brings out this giant, you know, 12 by 12 thing it's called, and I'm written on it is Descent Legends of the Dark, and it says Act 1 down in the corner. So there's this whole thread, you know. And what I feel it is, I think it's just them, it's their attempt to answer to Gloomhaven. I have a feeling that it's going to be a legacy type, a full, you know, written down, rip up type, legacy type adventure game. So we'll see though. Well, be- better they do more of that and less of Legacy of Dragonhold, which was actually good and compelling. And, of course, they're not going to support that system. Got to have a new incredibly bloated system for Fantasy Flight to plug. That's true. I missed one quick thing, too. For the Prophecy of the Kings, the expansion for Twilight Imperium 4, we were right when we said the expansion, it's just the expansion, $99.95. Yep. <laughs> so news from Blacklist Games. Blacklist Games, the outfit of Adam and Brady Sadler. They put out Street Masters and other things. But really, when you put out Street Masters, that's all you really need to focus on. They're going to have a new project called Dire Alliance, which is going to be a line of games 
the first instantiation of which is going to be Dire Alliance Horror, which doesn't really do much for me. So this is the first game that Blacklist Games is going to put out that was not primarily or initially designed by the Saddlers. This is going to be designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, the duo that gave us War Chest and perhaps more importantly Undaunted Normandy and the upcoming Undaunted North Africa. This is a competitive game where you kind of sort of pick a leader and kind of sort of pick a faction, classic combinatoric fashion, and then go and smack each other upside the face. Now, because it wouldn't be a blacklist game if it wasn't also cooperative in nature, the Saddlers then decided to make a cooperative version of that same game. So the base game is going to be either competitive or cooperative slash solo with... Again, a rule set designed primarily by the Saddlers in the latter case. I'm very interested to see how this develops. Again, the theme doesn't really do anything for me, but a lot of people are very enthusiastic about horror. They plan on kickstarting this in a miniature-less version and with a minis version, or you can just get the minis as part of their Blacklist Miniatures project. They're going to be launching the first wave of horror minis. So I'm very excited to see where that goes in terms of primarily the game. This is also going to be an interesting way to get a Blacklist game that is going to be vastly cheaper than their other offerings because it won't necessarily come with miniatures, and I'll probably pass on those. And I'm also just very, very interested to see further output by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. So I'm looking forward to Dire Alliance Horror. And sort of my last thing, Santorini. We played Santorini. Gorgeous game. Very interesting buildings, very excellent two-player game. So do you know what it needed, Mark? Do you know what Santorini needed? It needed a title that was a contradiction in terms. It needed Santorini, New York. You needed to be building gray, dull skyscrapers. So are you building Santorini or are you building New York? I don't know, Mark. Okay, you're probably building New York. And then you get to do it with four other players. It's a five-player game now. I can't wait. (laughs) And I do need to circle back to – because we just – I sort of no, just because I, I we breezed right by Toot and Common. We just sort of asked you if you played it, and you said no. It's a Kickstarter. It's a Rainer Knizzi game that has now been re-released. It's on Kickstarter right now. So he puts out great content. If you are a fan of the Doctor, you might want to check it out. Final bit of news from Blacklist: the Street Masters digital version for iOS and Android, which was in beta for a few months, has now been officially launched, and the beta is over. I played the beta a whole bunch. It was a good way to, you know, knock out very quick solo Street Masters games because when played solo, it's very, very quick. But this way you don't have to shuffle three decks of cards and worry about minis and stuff like that. The amount of content is not exactly where I would want it to be at this moment. It's only the base game plus Redemption Pack 1. But if you're going to pick one expansion to include, the Redemption Pack is probably the way to go. That's what lets the bosses be playable. And Street Masters is still great. Now... It automates things in a way such that it is very difficult to accurately track what's going on. You have to very carefully page through different submenus to see which cards are active and try to figure out what things are going to do. But, you know, the benefit is that the machine is going to take care of it for you anyway. So if you don't mind a certain degree of effectively unpredictability of how things are going to act, then the app is pretty darn good. It's also good at making arbitrary decisions for you. If, if, for example, a minion could go in the northern hex or the southern hex, it's not going to pause to ask you for every trivial little decision. It will pause to ask you for most trivial decisions, but it will automate some things where it thinks it's mostly irrelevant. So that's good. So if you're interested in giving it a try, go ahead and, and give it a download. As I say, I tried it in the beta. It was pretty diverting, but I'm not really into app games, so I'm not going to be buying it. Final note. Very briefly, I mentioned last week that All the Games You Like Are Bad was going to come back. It has come back. 
I've uploaded the first video review. There's going to be another one, not this week, but next week. And if you are a backer on our Patreon at the extra swagger level of above, you already have access to it. It's going to be made general access two weeks after initial publication for most video reviews. Also, if you're an overlord or a commissioner, you'll be able to tell me what to review. So there's that. Well, that just segues into what we're about to talk about. We're going to talk, we're talking about Cthulhu Death May Die. Walker, why is our feature game this week Cthulhu Death May Die? Well, because on our Patreon, if you're a certain backer of our Patreon, you get to vote on which games we're going to review for that week. Advertising over. So, Cthulhu Death May Die was released in 2019. It was a Kickstarter from Cool Mini or Not, because that's how they roll. It was designed by Rob Davio and Eric Lang, which honestly is a very impressive pedigree, all told. I'm not a huge fan of, of Davio's output, but... He was one of the key designers in HeroScape, which remains very near and dear to our hearts. He also more or less invented the legacy format, so whether that is deserving of your praise or hatred, that is very much up to you. HeroScape Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, Betrayal Legacy, most things with legacy in them, not all. Uh, he is responsible for he, his own outfit is Restoration Games, which mostly takes games like Downforce or Conspiracy or Fireball Island and republishes them with minor updates. They've all, they're also responsible for the Unmatched system, which we briefly tried and weren't particularly enamored with, but it was, it was cute and cheerful. Eric Lang, on the other hand, is one of, I think it's fair to say, one of the titans of the industry now. He's the design lead for Simon Industries. He is one of the foremost designers of color and one of the foremost Canadians in the industry. He's designed such seminal games as Blood Rage and Chaos of the Old World, also Rising Sun. He's also done some things that are, you know, a little bit less good, like Bloodborne, Arcadia Quest, and Couriers, and that's one of the reasons why I sort of took a miss on Cthulhu Death May Die when it first came out. When the Kickstarter came out, we actually made fun of it on this show. Walker made fun of the title, more on that later. I made fun of the fact that this was an overused theme, which it absolutely is, but at the same time isn't, more on that later. And that's one of the reasons why I completely ignored it, and when it, fu- when it came out, I tried it mostly grudgingly. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Cthulhu Death May Die? In Cthulhu Death May Die, you simply get to have fun. <laughs> You and simply, we're done. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Robot Games. You simply do, Mark. Once the map, you can't get away from, you know, building the map and setting a game up like this up. But once it starts, you're off to the races. There's no worrying about line of sight, range, modifiers to your character. Stuns. Stuns. And yeah, conditions on your characters. There are no fiddly bits. Here are your three dice. You roll them. Get your successes. Move out. Kill the cultists. And you're off to the races. It's just amazing. I think you're absolutely right in that mostly what it gets right is by what it strips out. We've, I've been talking about this for years, right? The, the, I initially identified it as the claustrophobia school of design. What can we take out of the standard bloated dungeon crawl and still get a satisfying experience? And similarly, Clue the Death May Die looks at the bloated dungeon crawly type of thing or the co-op adventure dice rolling type of thing. What can we strip out while still having the satisfying game experience so that there's a minimal component load, a minimal time load, and a minimal glut of all the fiddly bits. Now, to circle back to the title, because we're going to be talking a lot about the, the, the game's virtue otherwise. So this is kind of sort of, it's not really Lovecraftian at all, I don't think. It's got some of the trappings, naturally. Cthulhu shows up and Dagon and all those other things. The title comes from a quote from Call of Cthulhu. The full quote is, That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Now, in the original story published in 1928, it's got that standard sort of cosmic horror sort of allusions to great unknowable mysteries and sort of a a poetic insanity about it. In the context of a board game title, 
Cthulhu colon death may die, it just sounds stupid. Which is appropriate, because, and I mean this in the highest possible way, the game is pretty stupid. The theme is dumb. And it knows that it's dumb. This isn't about your sanity leaking away at eldritch unknown horrors and trying to read through the Necronomicon. No, 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 no. You're a bunch of hard cases that are going to go shoot a bunch of cultists in the face. This is pulp gone to the nth degree, such that Lovecraft is barely recognizable anywhere in anything that's going on. And I mean that in a high praise. The game is self-aware, and the game is self-aware in in the fact that it is silly. And that is the tone that it strikes, and one of the reasons why I, I think that the Cthulhu theming was a bit of a mistake, to be entirely honest. Just as a couple of examples before uh, we, we move off of this, one of the characters is an axe-wielding girl by the name of Borden who talks about the inevitability of, and I quote, death and axes. And there's another investigator who says, tell me about the slime you found. Was it screaming or did it smell purple? And even the description of the game on BoardGameGeek, even the copy, talks about how dumb it is to shoot Cthulhu in the face. Because er almost every other Arkham game, especially the ones from Fantasy Flight, are all about grubbing for clues and then getting a bank loan so you can buy a shotgun so you can shoot Hastor in the face with a shotgun. Which is dumb when you try to pretend that it's about cosmic horror. But when it's pulp nonsense, I'm on board. Yeah, and the last, just the last two stories we did in the last two missions, I think were the most interesting and unique things that we've ever done. Like, are aliens troubling your little town? Are they beaming up the local moose? Well, strap a bunch of dynamite to those moose eye and watch them go up and explode the mothership because that's how we roll in Cthulhu Death May Die. There are three Kickstarter exclusive scenarios. And this is where you really felt that they figured, okay, let's let our freak flag fly. Because we'll talk about the scenario system later because it's one of the strengths of the game. But a lot of the scenarios are, again, presented through this incredibly self-aware pulp style. But it's those three Kickstarter exclusives where they really lean into the nonsense. And honestly, that's when I think Death May Die is at its absolute best. I think it's a shame, honestly, that the one with the moose is Kickstarter exclusive. The one with the demonic ice cream man is Kickstarter exclusive. That is very unfortunate. I wish that everybody could get a chance to experience this. But, you know, Kickstarter exclusives are kind of part of the game. So let's get to the actual game. So it does the same that a lot of the co-ops are doing recently where the enemy gets a mini turn after everyone's turn. So there's not this big slow up in the game after everyone does their action. There's a big enemy turn. It's just like, you know, like street fighter, street masters where when your turn is done, just the monsters in your area are going to activate and attack you. Because it's even more streamlined than that. In Street Masters, you have to move things and everything yes. activates. In Death May Die, it's just, did you end your turn where there are monsters? Okay, they attack. That's it. That's right. And that, that way, it really scales to the player count. Because it doesn't matter how many players you're going to play with. Well, you can only play one to five. I just mean there's no changes in the rules. There's no things to look up. There's no say, oh, I'll add two monsters to this room. Or, you know, turn to this page if you're only playing with two players. It just plays exactly the same no matter how many players you're playing. The flow, as Michael Walker would say, is real. There's no extraneous turn structure. It's just, I take my turn. I take three actions. These two things happen. Go. And there's, and there's huge choices in this game. So there's, you know, on your turn, I mean, like, there's not just go around and kill stuff. So you can go, you have to decide what you want to do. You want to attack? Do you want to advance the mission objectives? Do you want to run out and save a teammate? Or are you too injured? Or do you want to rest? And within those decisions, there's even more things that can happen. Like if you attack or if you rest, you could trigger off uh, other combos because there's this whole sanity meter, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. So if you, if you, if you attack, you could hit a threshold on your insanity, which is going to give you more abilities and trigger some other things. Do you want to get to a safe space 
so you can get more cool toys or how quickly do you want to advance as a character? Because as you go more insane, you get more abilities, right? So how quickly do you want to advance through that particular system? And maybe you'll do it too quickly and therefore perish before, you know, the big climax at the end of the game. I am going to defer to your normal preference of saving criticisms for later in this particular instance. I just want to flag right now that I actually think that the quality of decision-making in Cthulhu Death May Die is not particularly good, despite my enthusiasm for the game. But you talked about the leveling up structure. It is a very, very simple system. Every character has three skills. One of them is unique to, uh, to a character and is never duplicated. The other two are from a pool of five. Every time you hit certain thresholds, your mental illness triggers, more on that later, and you level up a skill. And that's it. And it really does let you be flexible and you still get a sense of power progression because in addition to getting more skills, as your character gets more crazy, you're rolling more dice. And so very simply, with no rules overhead and with a minimum of upkeep and a minimum of fiddliness or tracking modifiers, your characters start out just rolling three dice and barely getting by. And by the end of the game, win, lose, or draw, you'll be rolling fistfuls of dice and doing massive combos with, with incredible yeah, that's, skills. That's what I mean. The combat is very quick. You gather all your dice into like, what, a pile or a mass? Is it? What is it? What does it say? Accumulation or a, a mound? Pit, maybe? A, a ditch? A lump? A, maybe. Maybe uh, a jumble. A jumble maybe, of dice. Sure. It's definitely not a pool. No. It's not a pool of no, dice. No, it's definitely, no, you wouldn't Just want to make dice. sure no. everyone's, because no, 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 no. it's not a dice pool game. So yeah, so you're always using these same dice. That's the other thing that is great in the game. No matter if you're attacking or you're being attacked, it's the same dice and they do the same thing, right? You don't have to see, well, because the monster's attacking, they do something completely different. It's all the same. So no fiddly bits in the game. Different monsters do, do in point of fact, have different effects, but we're talking about a very small number of unique modifiers that ever occur. And I shouldn't even call them modifiers because there are no modifiers. There's no like, okay, well, I'm at this range, so I lose a die, but I've got support, so I gain these. No, 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 no. It's incredibly straightforward. The most you're ever going to have to worry about is I'm at this sanity threshold, so I get these dice. My skills give me this. I have an item that does this. That's it. You're done. And honestly, just the ease of playing through this. I was actually reminded of this a few months ago in the middle of pandemic times. We reviewed Undaunted Normandy in part because we wanted something that would be very, very easy and very, very simple to do because just the setup is minimal and playing it is a joy and it's just simple and straightforward. And honestly, Cthulhu Death May Die, despite the fact that it looks like every other miniatures heavy crawl type thing, everything is so smooth and easy, it's a delight. And that is honestly one of its key appeals. And I realize that that may sound like damning with faint praise. But since you do get a lot of the same joys of your more complicated, more elaborate, more convoluted versions of this, the fact that it is so simple in terms of overhead, in terms of the mental effort wrestling with the system, that really does mean you get to focus more on the craziness that is happening on the table. And and a little bit of the crazy is how many different characters that you can choose from. Because they did the seem unusual thing where... There's like a generic set of abilities, and if they just spread those, you know, throughout the characters, and then they can just keep adding more and more and keep the balance because they all have roughly the same abilities. There's like, there's you can be super swift, you can be a marksman, you can be good with magic, like arcane magic, uh, sorry, arcane mastery, you can be a brawler, and all the characters have their own little personal skill set that they go up. And I really enjoy the way that they incorporated all these abilities because it's not always, you know, well, I just sh- 
you know, either, you know, you always have to be the, you can be swift and do a lot of damage, right? You don't have to be the guy that punches really hard or shoots really hard. You can speed. I'm so super fast. They can't hit me. And I zip in and out of the spaces back and forth so quickly that I destroy everything that's in them. I thought it was very interesting how they did that, right? I was wondering how they were incorporated. So all of characters, all of the characters can do, you know, big hits. And I thought they did a great job. Yeah. Swiftness, especially the way the movement system works does really lead to some more clever bits because the way you kite monsters around again just in terms of just very simple there's no notion of pinning it's just when you leave a space with enemies they follow you unless you have a certain skill in which case you can choose to leave them behind and so this character who might not be the strongest or who might not have the, the most ability to exert successes on the board can set up the monsters so that they're in just the right place for everyone else to do and so there's a certain degree of specialization and that's where i find a lot of the interesting tactical elements to emerge from being where you need to be and having the monsters be where you need them to be so let's talk a little bit about the cast, because I just want to flag that this is one of the things that happens when you pay special attention to coming up with a diverse cast. It is majority women and majority people of color. You have an Asian sniper from Ole Miss. You have Indiana Jones, except he happens to be black. You have people from all over the world. You have people from South America, from Asia, from Africa. And it really is great. There's there's tons of representation all over the place. It doesn't feel forced. It feels entirely natural. This, that was for Walker's benefit. And you do get a tremendous variety, both in terms of backgrounds and in terms of skill sets. I'm not a huge fan, uh, necessarily of how they represented the voodoo practitioners in the game. It was a little bit sort of Halloween costume version, as opposed to, you know, voodoo priests and priestesses do have traditional garb in a lot of contexts. And I don't know a whole lot about Haitian voodoo or Louisiana voodoo, but it looked like a little bit much. But honestly, that is a minor caveat in what is an excellent, well-rounded cast. And I'm a huge fan of game designs that take this seriously because representation matters. Let's talk about how a little bit about the setup because we sort of like hinted at it and the fact that we talked about, you know, we have the the moose scenario where you beam up the moose and they explode or the ice cream man. You might say, well, once you've played them, it's, it's you know, you've, you've already done it and it's going to be the same every time. And that's just not true because you're going to marry two things together, which are going to change the game every time. You're going to pick a random god and a different scenario and they're going to take decks and mix them together. It's going to give you a different experience every time you play these scenarios. I don't want to... I don't want to overemphasize the extent to which it's different because, you know, you've got five different possible Elder Ones, you know, Cthulhu, Dagon, Yogg-Sothoth, uh, Shubnagrath, you know, the whole thing. And then you pair that with an episode. I wouldn't say that changing the god really mixes things up too, too, too much. Uh, it is a nice level of variety. But what I particularly like is just how modular everything is. And I really find that it helps with setup. Games like this, especially when we're talking about Kickstarter games with tons of stretch goals, you have bags everywhere and just trying to find all the different components... I'm not going to say that it's a trivial setup. It's not Colorado or anything like that. But it is definitely the case that you open up the god the god box, you set up the components from that, you open up the scenario box, you set up the components from that, and you're more or less done for most of the elements. And that is a great way to organize things. It's it's heavy on the space, but it's a great way to organize things conceptually. And it gives you lots of variety. And it also is a great departure, again, from a lot of the other Cthulhu-type games where all you're doing is grubbing for clues. Here you might be interrogating guests, or you might be trying to decode a book, or, of course, trying to load dynamite onto a moose, because who hasn't been there? Fridays, am I right? Exactly. And the other thing is that a lot of these uh, 
when you add new things to the scenario, they're very, uh, I don't want to say basic, but very simple to do. You do it yep. simply. And when there is something a little bit more complicated, it always happens at the same time. Uh, when certain cards come up or a certain number of cards come up or if something happens, then the, the great God will advance. And then that's when what could be arguably the fiddly bits will happen, but you know, that's when they're going to happen. And there's like a small pause and you get all of that done and then there's no mistakes and then you just move on. And I thought that was a great way. It's not in the middle of someone's turn. It's not, you know, interrupting play. It happens when it happens and then you move on. The difficulty is also pretty decent. I like the fact that you, it's, it's not an overly easy game. There are a fair number of losses. I'm not a huge fan of when the losses tend to occur because the structure of every episode is the same. Your goal is to disrupt a ritual and that makes the elder one vulnerable. And then you punch the elder one real hard in the face over and over and over again until the elder one dies. And that's the only condition under which the elder one can die if you've disrupted the ritual. And that's fine. I would prefer it if the losses reliably happened either after disrupting the ritual or on the cusp of ending the ritual. That has not been my experience. Losses often happen just in the middle of just cause because, and often because something random happened, which kind of gets to my criticism about the quality of decision-making. The loss condition before the elder one shows up is someone dying, which is fine. And you might think, oh, well, all I have to do is is stay away from monsters and I might be safe. But one of the tricks that the game likes to pull out is to spawn monsters wherever you happen to be standing just because. And there's practically nothing you can do about it at all. You can be as safe as you can, far away from all the monsters, outside their movement range. But then you pull a Mythos card because, sure enough, every Cthulhu game has to have you pull a Mythos card at the end of your turn. And it says, spawn this monster underneath you. And then, guess what? That might cause you to die. Now... Can you mitigate this? Absolutely. I'm not saying that it happens all the time and it's not like some bolt out of the blue that can reduce a perfectly healthy individual down to death. But when when we've lost, it's often come at a sort of abrupt anticlimactic sort of, oh, okay, I guess I'm dead. That's it. We've lost. So there's that. Yeah, well, but yeah, because we didn't talk about this interesting stress system where you can spend stress to re-roll. So you've had a semi-complicated turn where you had to get something done. So you've spent your stress, but then you've moved out of the area and you thought you were safe, but you're at no stress, which lets you re-roll when you've, when you've rolled very badly. And then like you say, you, you draw a mythos card and the monster attacks you and gets a, a, an outstanding roll and takes you from almost full hit points to zero hit points because the roll was so good and you can't re-roll any of those dice because your, and, and your then you pull stress a, is tapped out. And then you pull a discovery card that finishes you off. Exactly. One thing I do want to stress though, just to circle back from the, uh, the setup, all the cards with one exception, entirely come from the the scenario setup. There are no generic Mythos cards, and there are no generic Discovery cards. All of them are keyed to the Elder One you're playing against and the scenario you're playing. And that really does... Sometimes it's just superficial. Most scenarios have the item that gives you plus one die when fighting in melee, but it does really add to the sense that each episode is distinct. Yeah, it's plus one die, but it's how you get it, right? Right. It's like either you're going to have an attack beaver, or you're going to have an ice cream truck that runs people or, over. Or a pocket knife. Or a pocket knife. It's all different. It's all key to the theme. It's fantastic. Sure. So let me talk about the one deck of cards that is consistent across all games, and that is the madness. At the start of every game, every character gets a madness. The explanation is that the characters are already insane. They can become so insane that they can't function anymore, and that's a function, uh, effectively death. But they have this madness that will trigger at various junctures. 
And honestly, I'm not a huge fan of the way games like this leverage mental illness because the way it's presented in Cthulhu Death May Die, and this is the defense that has been offered by the designers, it's okay that we, you know, gamify mental illness this way because they're kind of like superpowers, which I think kind of misses the point. The stigma about mental illness doesn't go away if you treat it as some sort of weird kind of superpower, especially since the super, the abilities in question are actual mental illnesses that people suffer from in, in some cases, and they're presented as turning them into unstoppable killing machines. The, the worst example of this is somebody who suffers from psychotic breaks, who will teleport somewhere and do massive quantities of damage to other people, possibly their friends. People who suffer from psychotic breaks are vastly more dangerous to themselves than to anybody else. And I'm not, I just don't like the way that it's presented. I think that since Daviau and Lang very cleverly looked at Lovecraft, which is a problematic, racist legacy. I'm not saying you shouldn't read Lovecraft and enjoy him. I'm just saying dude had some ideas and they found their way into his fiction and said, no, 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 we're going to have a diverse cast and we're not going to have it be cosmic horror where the where the fear of the unknown was often just a, a thinly veiled metaphor for fear of Asian people and immigrants. We're instead going to have it be this great pulp experience with a diverse cast. Great. And then they didn't square the circle. They could have gone the extra distance and say, no, 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 we're going to get rid of all these mental illness tropes and instead replace it with, you know, the corrupting Eldritch influences or whatever. There's a thousand different things they could have done. Yeah, this is the same problem that all of these Cthulhu games have, though. Yes, yes. I, I don't mean to imply that it's unique, precisely because they were so good about the representation of the cast, with the possible exception of the voodoo practitioners. I wish they had gone that extra mile and done away with all these tropes about mental illness. That's all. And as I say, problematic media is very much my bag. Like, I'm not saying that this makes it make them bad people or this not, not a game worth playing. I love this game and I will play it at nearly any opportunity. I'm just saying I wish they could have taken that one step further. Yeah, the only issue that I had with it is, is I really wish they had because some of the stories were so intriguing and some of the, you know, the theme was in there. I just really wish they had sort of like an end paragraph. Like, they didn't have any. When you won, you just won and you put the game away. There was no little paragraph at the end saying, good job, you know, the the villagers thanked you and you went on your way. And after you left, the ice cream man snuck back in and took the village back over or, you know. <laughs> or gave man, everyone ice cream sandwiches. Yeah, That's yeah, a good yeah. He knew the, the, you know, the error of his ways and gave free ice cream to all the children. <laughs> um, I don't think Cosmic Evil works that way, but – I, for one, loved the fact that there's hardly any flavor text anywhere, and what there is is very minimal and very much playing into the absurdity of the theme. I honestly wonder if they'd spent too much time with this absurd silliness that then might have started wearing a bit thin. All you have is a quote from every character, a brief bio on the back, which is of all the text, the straightest text that exists in the game, and a tiny little bit on every discovery card that's actually usually kind of cute. It presents these lovely little vignettes. The most memorable one we had, which we will not spoil, was about a, a certain mailman. Milkman. Oh, it was a milkman. Yes. Okay, well, same difference. Yeah, that... Oh, man. This is... Again... These little flashes of absurdity that are just so memorable against, and we've been playing Cthulhu games for well over a decade. Yes. And they all feel the same, mostly because they're almost all from Fantasy Flight. Whereas this one is just a joyous thumb in the eye to all of those conventions. It's true. Yeah. I loved it. I love it too. Again, as I say, the quality of decision-making I don't think is, is superb. Very often it's just a function of this card says something spawns out from under you. You're rolling a fistful of dice. Sometimes there's not really much you can do with your turn, or sometimes your turn is just, I'm going to roll three attacks to do as much damage as I can. But again, when the systems are this clean, when everything is so simple to set up and play, and the tone is this delightful, I, I find it hard to, to, to be too down on it. For me, this is, this is a super crowded field of co-op 
high body count plastic kinds of games. But for me, it's in the very top tier. It's right up there with games like Street Masters, Hellboy, Space Cadets Away Missions. But even though I find the decision making better in all three of those games, it is by far the fastest and cleanest. And so I really think that when it comes to these, you do a heck of a lot worse. And when I ha- when it comes time, for example, to set up a game of Hellboy, part of me is like, oh, I have to reset up the decks, don't I? <laughs> and yes. I have to manage these four different kinds of frog minis. Okay, sure. I'm willing to do it. Hellboy's amazing. And as I say, there's a very rarefied error, but I am shocked at how much I, I, I appreciate Cthulhu Death May Die. It's true. And, and when you said that they didn't do any closing paragraphs, remember when we were, when we started some of these missions, we came up with fantastic intro stories and, and stuff. So maybe they just left it open like that so you can come up with your own sort of, you know, you had the nun, I had the priest, and we we're coming home from choir practice, and we happened upon this. And this is all stuff we just, you know, quickly made up in our heads, and maybe that's why they left it open like that. Absolutely. We've been, we, we make fun of other games that say they tell stories when really what they do is they just labor you with a whole bunch of badly written flavor text. Cthulhu Death May Die knows when to pull back, knows when to lean on its source material and when to run away from it. And to that end, I think it's a triumph. I'm looking forward to season three because there's season two is the expansion. It has, it's the retail available expansion it has more characters and more episodes. Season three may or may not happen. If so, I, I hope so. Uh, I would also very much like to see the system ported to other kinds of settings, to be frank, if they're able to do it. I, as I say, I, I don't think the Cthulhu-ness of the game is its strongest suit. It's more just its attitude and its willingness to focus on what matters in terms of quality gameplay and satisfying emergent narrative. Exactly. No line of sight, no range, none of that silliness. Almost everything is, you know, uh, in the space that you're in, and very few characters have, have marksmen or range whatsoever, so it keeps it nice and simple. I'm not going to go back over it. I would play this anytime and suggest anyone just give it a try. Super fun. I would say your skepticism is warranted, but give it a shot if you have a chance anyway. It does not take itself too seriously. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.